You're listening to a Curry Mail podcast. Deadly. The Black Room. The Black Room, your fortnightly podcast where our journalists and editors unpack the stories and issues from the latest edition of the Curry Mail newspaper. Jingiwala, welcome to The Black Room. I'm your host, Nick Payton, and co-hosting with me today is Kirk Page. Kirk, it's great to be back for our third episode of The Black Room. It is. Um, I'm very excited to be here in the in the Black Room today, and yeah, looking forward to our conversation. So this is a jam-packed podcast. Kirk and I will be taking a look at edition 758, which has just hit newsstands on August 25. First up, we'll be having a yarn about the COVID situation here in New South Wales, and we'll be having a chat with Kirk about his interview, which is featured in this edition with Jiman Bunjalung woman, Professor Judy Atkinson. Then we'll be hearing from our senior journalist, Darren Coyne, about what's happening on the ground with the serious outbreak of COVID in Aboriginal communities in Western New South Wales. Finally, we'll wrap up and take a look at sport and how racism is still inflicted on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in today's day and age. We acknowledge Bundjalung country and the Wijibal Waibal land upon which our officers sit. We acknowledge and pay our respects to our ancestors and elders, past and present. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. The Koori Mail. Knowledge. Culture. Country. Connection. So, Kirk, let's talk about the COVID situation here on Bundjalung country first, and then we can branch out into what's happening around the nation. Western New South Wales has absolutely gone crazy. I mean, you've overnight we've got 49 uh, new cases of COVID um, in Western New South Wales, including 35 in Dubbo, 7 in Burke, 6 in Wilcannia, 5 in Orange, 1 in Broken Hill. How's this situation? It's yeah. it's it's really bad. Yeah, it's it's frightening. You know, it's 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 now it's come to the point where it is reaching into those communities, and this is something that you know people were talking about that was going to be a real thing, and so yep. the impact on those communities is really intense. And you know, some of these <laughs> communities have already suffered enough. There's been droughts. There's been mice plagues, and here we go again. But you know. And let's not forget some of the ways our communities were suffering even before COVID. I mean, once we get a hold on COVID, our communities are still doing it tough. Yeah, if we didn't already <laughs> have challenges in our lives. So, yeah, there's some really great things that are, that are being done in the community. I know that there's been uh, lots of people reaching out and, you know, taking care of, of the families and friends. And I think that's one of the messages that I've sort of heard in a lot of the talkback radio stuff that I've been listening to is that, you know, there's been people like businesses who have been donating their, their goods, like butchers sharing and, and, you know, delivering meat to some of those communities. And also, you know, people just trying to do as much as they can. I mean, the thing about it is that in these times, especially with our, you know, older people, you want to be able to sort of be around to help. And so I think this is yep. the thing that's really hard is that we can't be there to help. And what do you do? What What is helping? Are we sending donations? Are we sending food and clothing? We don't even really have a clear plan as to how we can help these communities. Yeah. Well, what I've, what I've noticed is that there, there's 
there's I think there's a, a, the younger generation are uh, sort of reaching out. I can't remember the name of the woman. There was someone that was talking on the radio, this awesome young lady, and she was saying that she'd been sort of corralling uh, her own resources and also, you know, reaching out to other other businesses, smaller businesses. Right. So yep. it could be anything from food. I think the main thing is food and also just dialing in, I reckon. Checking in. Yeah. Making sure family's okay. that's a big one. Yep. Tell me about your situation. So we're under lockdown here on Bunjalung Country in northern New South Wales. We've now been extended for two weeks now up until the 10th of September under lockdown in Lismore. What are we going to do? I mean, I'm already, you know, I've I've pruned the garden and I've mowed all the lawns last week and I've tried to do a lot kind of outside being under lockdown um, I, I guess for my mental health to try and keep that in check. I mean, if I'm sitting in the house all day, you, you, there's just only so much you can do. Yeah. There's something about this invisible blanket that sort of is descending upon the community, which says you can't do this. And, you know, there's a lot of things that we're being told that we can't do. And I mm. think there's something about that, that switches something in our brains where, we start to, we really start to feel that impact. Mm. I know I have some friends in Sydney who are, who have been in a longer lockdown mm. than us here. Um, and so, yeah, it's real. Um, it's a I've, ghost town out there. Mm. I mean, the main street of Lismore, we've probably got one of the five cafes open on the main street. Um, I'd say 90% of all of our shops have shut now. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm worried about how, how our businesses are going to stay afloat around here. That's right. And I was thinking about that this morning, really noticed, noticing it, that lots of shops are closed mm. and what is going to be, you know, what's going to be the impact of that down the line. And of course, I think the last time there was lockdowns, I don't know if there was too many shop fronts or anything like that, that had closed down. Mm. But yeah, I was thinking about how this is really going to impact because, I think being in, in this beautiful part of the world, in the Northern Rivers region, we haven't had to feel that serious It doesn't lockdown. really feel like it's affected us, does it? I mean, we've known it's around, but you know, it, it's not like it's been in Sydney or Greater Sydney where you can see it happening. We're kind of detached a little bit up here. Yeah. And I think, you know, as human beings, there's something about the social sort of interactions that we sort of take for granted. Mm. So I think this is also a big thing. So I think there is a lot of people out there who are having to face that. And, you know, we have to try and do all the good things for ourselves that we can to try and, you know, counteract. Yep. And I find for me, a personal thing, I'm a music lover. So I, I have an eclectic taste in music. Sometimes it might be grunge, sometimes it might be pop, sometimes it might be classical. It can be anything. It depends on the mood I'm in. I'm finding music is helping a lot, mm. even if it's just putting my headphones in, trying to escape for a while into the lyrics or into the feeling or into the sound. Um, and we've got a, a massive brand new online uh, music festival starting called Black Sound. So... Yeah. All you listeners out there, in our current edition 758, there's information on Black Sounds. It's a free event online. Uh, so check out our current edition on, on how you can get involved and, you know, maybe do something a little bit different, 
get to that online show. We've got Barker and loads of other mob who are performing. Yeah, and it's youth focused, so it's coming from the voices of the younger people. Yeah. Right? So which I am not in that um bracket, but there's lots of uh, really fantastic talks and panels that you can listen to and it's over two days. So September six to September eight. Um, oh, beautiful. So that's still while we are in lockdown. Yeah. So we'll still be in lockdown up here on Bunjalung and Kirk and I will be chiming into the Black Sounds. Yeah. So that's a great opportunity. I think not only music, it'll be conversations and very sort of topical panels talking about, you know, what the young people are, you know, sort of experiencing and concerned about. Now, coming up after the break, we will be talking to our senior journalist, Darren Coyne, who has been speaking to Mob on the ground in Western New South Wales. We'll be back after this. The Mail newspaper is the voice of Indigenous Australia. 100% Aboriginal owned and operated. To subscribe, visit com. Welcome back to The Black Room. Now, I have our senior reporter, Darren Coyne, dialing in from where he is working from, which is from home today under the lockdown, here on Bunjalung Country. Darren, welcome back to our third episode of The Black Room. Jingibala, Kirk and Nick. Now, Darren, I know that you've been doing lots of great work um, for this issue, and there was, a, there was a program from Headspace that you've done a story on. That's right. Um, just last week, the... Um Headspace uh, launched a, a new program called Take a Step, and it's aimed at improving the um, just the mental health of, of young people around Australia. And um, it's about you know making sure that you have a yarn with 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 a mate if you're feeling a bit down. Mm. Um, it's about doing something which makes you feel a little bit better. And given that everybody at the moment is locked away, well, on this side of the country anyway. Um, it's those small things which can make a difference to keeping your spirits up and getting you through the day. That's right. Nick and I were talking about that earlier. And um, what what do you do to try and keep yourself afloat and you know to maintain clarity? We were talking about things. You know, I've I've been out in the garden a bit. I've been listening to music. So what's what's helping to keep your mental health in check? Look, very similar. I'm either sitting in a in front of a computer or talking to people on the telephone because I can't go anywhere um, and that's people all across Australia so you know I feel I feel very connected in that way um, or I'm out in, out in my back garden pulling up weeds or I just finished a pond for for summer so the frogs and the birds have got somewhere um, yeah just keep trying to keep myself active and and keep the place looking good and keep myself in a good frame of mind yeah. and it is in the garden where I I often go to wander, and um, that's where I where I think about my stories too. You know, as I'm pottering away. And I suppose so, for for people that don't have a garden, um, as you've just mentioned, you've got the Headspace program that people can get involved in. Kirk look, and I. The, the program. That program has a lot of resources online, Nick. Um, if people just, um, yeah, if they want to Google uh, Headspace, and um, they'll they'll find links to the. Uh, to the program, and uh, it's just a lot of online resources for young people and their family. Just maybe help help them uh, get through the days a little bit better. 
Now, Darren, I think uh, a lot of us, especially in New South Wales, are feeling fairly let down um, by our political leaders. Um, we've got our own political leader, Riverbank Frank. Who's who's Riverbank Frank? Tell us about him. Oh, okay. Uh, Riverbank Frank um, is a he's a fellow who an elder out um, Dubbo Way. Now he's uh, full name's Frank Doolan, and he's um, he sort of emerged as somewhat of a grassroots champion for for the many people in that area. And why is um, that? And, what, and what's know, he been talking about? Look, he's been talking about the need to get vaccinated, the need to you know look after your mob, um, think about your elders. Um, he's he's been get, getting quite. He actually had some problems getting vaccinated himself, and um, but he finally got it, and um, he's just been speaking out to local media. Um, and in international media, in fact, he even had a, a shout out from the prime minister the other week, who sort of praised him for for the work he was doing, trying to get the message out to mob. Mm. So yeah, he's a character. Um, he, he didn't have too many good things to say about the politicians. <laughs> well, it's, well, it's not a good we situation. Don't need to go into that. Sorry. Well, it's not a good situation. I mean, there's hardly even a plan, you know. Uh, so. Look, there's uh, Nick. The people that I spoke to out that way, um, you know, people like Peter Gibbs. Uh, he's a Camilleroy man who uh, works with Red Ready, uh, and they provide employment and programs for all across that area. So they're they're very well entrenched. Now, Peter was telling me that you know the the word coming back to him was that people are really struggling, you know, and and they can't understand why when the government's had almost two years, two years almost since this all started. That's right. To actually get provisions in place, to get vaccines in place, to get services in place, and to get the message out there, to, to educate people about what's going on. Uh, they're, they're saying that they felt that they've felt like they've just been, um, been forgotten. Now, you know, in, in recent weeks, um, the defence force has had to be sent out there just just to get food to people. Yep. That's uh, and and COVID is um, yeah, it's it's spreading like wildfire, and that's the fear. So, yeah, tough times. And we've got to take care of our elders, especially people like Riverbank Frank. Um, these are the people that are actually on the ground giving out the good information, as opposed to what he's saying about our political leaders at the moment, who. You know, they seem to be, you know, kind of playing with fire here a bit, especially yeah. in the way that we're now under another two weeks lockdown up here. Had there been a ring of steel put around Sydney and the crisis down there, it may not have got up here and it may not have reached out to those communities in Western New South Wales. Nick, that's why regional people are so upset about this. Um, it, it, they feel like they're being punished for the sins of... Uh, just a very small number of absolutely stupid people who have thought that they were above the rules, that they were above, you know, sort of following rules. And um, and, and you're right. Um, the New South Wales government has has not... They, they didn't lock down quick enough. They, there's no doubt about that. Um, and look, right from the start, let's think back to the Ruby Princess... What, you know, that's what a this, disaster. This, yeah, yep. they disembarked a ship with, with sick people into a country which was COVID-free. Yep. Now, 
you know, who 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 do we blame for that? Well, I I think that we can blame both levels of government, federal, which federal government, which is meant to be in charge of protecting our borders, and then the um, state government for for not following the proper health protocols. So moving on, Darren, from the crisis in New South Wales, Western New South Wales, I wanted to, there's some great news coming out of the Northern Territory, and you've written a really great story uh, in this edition. Could you share a little bit about uh, that story? Oh, sure. Good. Look, that was a um, that was the announcement that um, uh, Morris Blackburn, the um, class action litigants, had um, had secured a thirty five million dollar settlement on behalf of young people who've been incarcerated at Dondale Youth Detention Centre. Now, uh, I'm sure most people would be aware that uh, Dondale, the Dondale Centre, has a bit of a um, reputation as, as as a disgusting place. Yeah, <laughs> place we all remember the, been... that image of Dylan yeah, Voller. All... Yep, in the spit hood. That's right. Um, now, now the lawyers the, the lawyers took on the New South Wales government over this, and the government has agreed to pay thirty five billion dollars. Now, this was a class action, and they think that there there's probably around about twelve. 1,200 young people, or some of them are now older people, um, who could be eligible for a share in that compensation because of the just the atrocious conditions that they were subjected to during their time. And um, so there's, there's a big push now to get the message out to those people who are incarcerated between, it was August 2006 and November 2017. So that's um, what, you know, that's uh, 11 years of young people being um, being subjected to some horrific conditions in that place. So, they would, um, on, Darren, would they be asking for anyone who was in the detention centre from those dates to get in contact? Like, how would they know that this has happened if they weren't reading newspapers or watching television? Well, that that's part of the point. Okay, Kirk, is uh, the, the the court the court found that um, yeah, they, these instances had had taken place uh, um it's it's awarded that money but now the the real push is to find out who's actually uh, who's eligible now um the government has had to provide a list of inmates from from that time or between those those years uh but then you know it it's the last known address in a lot of cases and those people may have moved on or so what they're doing is they're they're putting they're putting together a lot of material in various languages, which will be distributed out into those remote communities to try and try and find as many many of these young people as possible, because that that's actually part of the um, the court ordered settlement is that uh, that the possible claimants be contacted in a variety of ways. Yeah. So w- anyone who's wants to find out more about that can go to our website or yep. find us in the newspaper. Yeah, um, definitely. There was a great quote that I just wanted to sort of remind you of. It, it, there was a quote that said, "These young people may have broken the law, but they did not deserve to be broken by the law." So this is such great news, and thanks for covering the story, and uh, thanks for being in the black room, Darren Coyne. Thank no you. worries, a, a pleasure, a pleasure, guys, and catch up soon. The Black Room is a Kumail production. If anything in this podcast raises any issues for you, please contact 
at the National Indigenous Critical Response Service on 1800 805 801 or Lifeline Australia on 13 11 14. Carla Grant talks to Keenan Mundine and Carly Stanley about their experience of family and domestic abuse. Like I said, complex trauma is really multi-layered and I think a journey that he's going to be on for the rest, both of us are going to be on for the rest of our lives. My childhood wasn't a childhood that I want to remember. There was a lot of struggle. Yeah, it was a really difficult time. Living Black Conversations, Monday, 8.30 on NITV and On Demand. Jingyi Walla, welcome back to The Black Room. I'm your host, Nick Payton. I'm here with our co-host, Kirk Page. Kirk, let's talk about a recent interview of yours that's featured in our current edition 758. Thanks, Nick. Yes, I had the wonderful opportunity to speak with Judy Atkinson, Emeritus Professor Judy Atkinson. Now, Judy's a local... She lives here in Lismore. Isn't she? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And she has, she's been a real champion around uh, sort of doing a lot of research that's sort of based around trauma and that impact, I guess, since the point of colonization in a way. And so it was really interesting to talk with her because what we shared, there was a lot that she shared in the interview and she was uh, giving me lots of information because she is a former uh, university lecturer. She is. And actually just on that, she was the head of um, one of the departments up at Southern Cross University before I started my undergraduate there. And you've studied some of that course, haven't you? I've finished that course now. So we did a lot of work with um, Judy Atkinson. Uh, she was all of our readings for, I did two units, Trauma and Resilience 1 and Trauma and Resilience Component 2. Yeah. And most of my readings every week were Judy's readings. Yeah. So she really has done a lot. In ter- I think she developed, she was actually one of the people who developed that course. She did. So... Yeah, and it's still it's still running there, right? Yes. So um, that was the trauma and healing kind yeah. of component of that degree. Yeah. You're yeah. Right. So she spoke. We spoke about a lot of things, and she uh, was asking me. She was asking me lots of questions, actually, and just kind of setting up these sort of very important points in our history, in a way. And so she talked about, you know, some of the massacres that have occurred. Um, so, and when we think about massacres, we think about you know, people dying or being murdered. Um, and that in itself is really quite a tragic and traumatic thing. But then what's left are the people who are the survivors of those massacres. That's right. And those horrible events. So she, she shared a little bit about some of her research and even, you know, some of her thinking around how we are, you know, as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that we are impacted by those moments in time. And, you know, people talk about transgenerational trauma. Yep. And intergenerational trauma. Intergenerational trauma is what I was getting at. Yep. Where it's passed down from generation to generation. Yeah. Yeah. And hearing her talk and tell some stories that made me think about it in a very different way. So the impact on the, uh, on the people who were the survivors of say the trauma of massacre, Mm -hmm. not only are we dealing with 
land and homes being, you know, desecrated and taken away, but family members and, and really horrific acts being acted upon. Yep. Our women. Yes. Especially. Yes. And so what, what she shared was, so there's a, there's a moment in time where something happens and then, you know, then the, the, the repercussions of that are, are lived through the children's and the grandchildren's experience. And so even if that actual act hasn't happened to that person themselves, is mm, that, but that's mm. what you're saying. That's the intergenerational thing. It'll just carry through the family. Yeah. Yeah. And so what she's really wanting to sort of share about is there's this thing where she's saying, you know, this, this truth telling. So there's a lot of people that, and we hear about this truth telling. So she took me down this sort of path around what that is. And I think the, one of the main points was, you know, if we are to have truth telling that we need to do it with each other first in our own communities. Yep. And then there's also the people that are in power, the people that are in that, you know, those rooms in Canberra, you know, how are they, how are they going to come to the table and invest in this truth telling? And they also have to acknowledge their own truth. And that's a very sort of complex and sort of layered um, web. So, But there's also the denial. So as much as there's... That's what I'm saying. There's the truth telling. Yeah, we need to tell the truth about it. There's people out there who live on Aboriginal land in Australia right now mm. who don't know about the massacres, mm. who don't believe that there were frontier wars, mm. who don't believe the atrocities that were committed against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and people from other neighboring islands as well yes. that were stolen and taken and brought here to yeah. work on cane fields and sugar fields. That's right. It's that denial that we need to get on top of in that it did happen. Yeah. And then we see generations of children in detention, you know, our men in prisons and it's not, the thing about it is, I think what I got from the conversation was that we're not really talking about the real issues. Mm. And, you know, this thing about deep listening, um, what does that mean to have a deep conversation where you listen? And also, how do you start those conversations? I think that's a very difficult thing. If, you know, say, for instance, we have family members who have experienced trauma. Um, how do we approach those conversations? So it was really wonderful to hear her insights and, you know, for her to share about all of the, all of this work that she's been doing. And I tell you now, I don't know how, like I was kind of shaken after the interview, to be honest. So, and then even listening back to it, it was hard work. I bet. Um, and so, you know, but what I got out of it was that, you know, we need to take the time to nourish and nurture ourselves and, you know, be okay with sort of putting your hand up too, I guess, and say, I'm not doing too well, mm. because then we see that people will act out and mm. whether that's through addiction of all, <laughs> all kinds yep. or, you know, sort of behavior that is obviously calling out for help. I just saw on Twitter the other day, uh, one fella put out his new mental health plan and he said, I'm putting my mental health plan out here because it's going to destigmatize the fact that people need mental health plans. And he's put it out there saying, look, I might seem normal on the outside, but I actually need help with my mental health. So I'm letting other people know I struggle with my mental health. If you need to get help, go and get a mental health plan as well, like I have. And I thought that was brilliant advice to give people. 
there's something about that, I reckon, about, you know, creating a system where you can be accountable, whether that's to a friend or a partner or a family member, um, because it's very easy to just do the Duna dive <laughs> and not come out, you know, for hours or days. But I'll, I'll, I'm going to show you a quote that's in the paper. That would be beautiful. Yeah. It's, um, Judy said, if you want a truth telling, you have to tell the truth. I don't think Canberra will do it or support it. If you want truth telling, go and sit with community and be with each other and listen to each other and start with our own community, listening and creating a space for that deep listening. So what I mentioned before. So it is encouraging to know that there is a way to heal um, through connecting with each other. And such beautiful words there by Judy Atkinson-Kirk. Now, coming up after the break, we will be speaking to Yamichi Mann and our Deadly Sports editor, Darren Moncrief. Since 1991, the Koori Mail has been the voice of Indigenous Australia. As Australia's only national fortnightly publication, we are excited to celebrate our 30th birthday this year. For all the latest news and views, Subscribe at currymail.com. And welcome back to the Black Room. I'm Nick Payton and I'm here with our co-host Kirk Page. We are speaking to our deadly sports editor, Darren Moncrief. Darren, welcome to the program. Happy to be here, as usual. Now, Darren, we have got a massive sport section in our current edition of the Currymail newspaper, edition 758. There's a there's a lot in sport happening that I can see you've written about in in terms of racism in sport mm. still on the field. Um, we've got a huge headline here um, made by uh, Marlon Motlop. Let us know what's been happening. Yeah, basically, um, a currently injured AFL player, Taylor Walker, was at a SANFL match recently, and. Uh, during a halftime huddle, he said to one of his mates to target a Aboriginal opposition player but use a pretty violent racial slur. This was overheard and reported to the AFL and it all got out. And so basically in the wash-up to it all, Marlon Motlop, who plays for Glenelg in the sample, um, they're a top football club there, he led the call for the SANFL clubs, all, all the 10 clubs, to a show of support in their stance against racism. And that was a minute or two together, all players, umpires, officials, arm and arm, as a symbolic gesture. Um, all good, but the frustration here was, yeah, you're right, the headline that we use is Marlon's quote, that we're still dealing with this in 2021, which sums up, I think, the frustration across the country in regards to this in sport and just in society in general. So that was a pretty powerful, pretty powerful act by this um, young Larry Keir man playing yep. in Adelaide. Yep, I'm and, looking and at that picture now and that's on page mm. 52 of all those uh, uh, interlocked arms on the field there yeah. and it really is players uniting to stop the racists. And it's good, you know, like, and um, Marlon and the sample said there was good buy-in from across the league. So a lot of these decent fellows, you know, and they, they say they, they're pretty uncomfortable with this dude's, um, you know, comment. So it was a way for them to say 
see the brothers, you know, brother boys look good against this too. But yeah, we're still having to call on such gestures, do some heavy lifting, you know, to educate these mob. And if anything, I think, I think that this episode has maybe shifted the focus a little toward then the onus, which I've touched on in my particular column in in this. That I think the onus has shifted. I think it, it's shifted a little. The focus shifted a little to the the racists to do the heavy lifting and education educating of themselves. Only a fractional, you know, a fractionally small amount, but it's at least sort of focus attention towards that side of this debate than always us having to educate and host and whatnot, you know. Yeah, it's a big story. Big story. Hey, it's a big story, Kirk, and it's it's exhausting. I'm like taking a deep breath just I talking bet. about it. You know, that's right. It's really emotional, and it's very, mm. you know, these things that we have to face. And when it's brought out into the public like that, it's kind yep. of like we all experience it again. Not not just the people in the immediate sort of moment. And you know what? And you know what, Kirk? Uh, um, we we've all. This is one one thing I experienced when I was young. It, Getting vilified like that in, in, in public, that people can hear and around, I can just can't imagine Robbie, but there's a sense of shame as well, being yes. called such bad things. It's like, it's shame to that. That's, in the, that's a little understood reaction, you know, because I, I felt that when I was little and, and hearing this stuff. I was shame to be called, like it's my fault that I was called that, you know, and mm. so. It's deep. Yeah, it's, it's deep. Speaking of deep. We're going to dive yeah. into the Olympics, the Paralympics. I know you covered some of that for us. Absolutely. There's three um, Indigenous athletes um, currently at Tokyo. Um, Who have we got? Um, Amanda Reed, a cyclist, um, Ruby Storm, swimmer, and Samantha Schmidt, she does the discus. And so, and happily to report that Ruby's already uh, the proud owner of a bronze medal in her event yesterday. So ah, really deadly. Great. I know, and I'm loving it. I've been watching it on TV. Congratulations, Tita. I know, she's solid. And um, and we got this little line here. Um, oh, where is it? It says here, as her na- surname suggests, Ruby has every intention of taking the Paralympic by world by storm. Oh, that's <laughs> great. Ruby Storm. Ruby I Storm. <laughs> I know. I'm really, you know, I, um, I have children with special needs and it, it sort of touches me in, in, in that way too, watching Paralympics, you know, watching these folk in on that sport being able to you know compete at this level is this heartwarming you know i love that amanda reed went from swimming to cycling yeah that's incredible i know you know totally multi-sports you know yep and some of the stories behind it and and even the the actual games like i was listening to how how um wheelchair rugby and basketball is played so they'll have levels of um um intellectual like levels on the spectrum you know and they'll put like you got allocated numbers for whatever you may have. Yeah, and right. So you, you play in this position, and others with allocated numbers play in that position. Yeah, it's quite complex. It's not as simple as it looks. It's great, but. And we were chatting earlier as we were sort of putting the content for the podcast together, and Nick mentioned the thing around you know we, you know, there's these sort of conversations, even the idea of a Paralympics or you know someone mm. is, is disabled. 
try playing rugby league in a wheelchair. <laughs> you know, like that takes some skill. Like Nick it's so was true. Saying that. Yeah, I was saying, you know, how can how can we describe Paralympians as being disabled when yes. I can't roll around in a wheelchair and oh. shoot hoops? I'm I'm disabled in that way. So is yes. it is it not more of a multi-abled uh, these people, you know, they're able to do more than than us us people who are not, you know, deemed as disabled. Bro, I'm learning something today that is the, that's the best take I've heard. That I can, that you're spot on with that. <laughs> multi Multi-able, I like it. Yeah, tuck yeah. me in the wheelchair, I'll fall over. I'll get my arms. I want to be able to do any. Oh, and then put me on a hill. I'd roll all the way down. <laughs> that's right. Darren Moncrief, thanks so much for joining us in the Black Room. We'll see you in a fortnight. You're welcome. See you. Thank you. Google Bear. Thank you for listening to the Black Room Podcast. I'm your host, Kirk Page. And I'm Nick Payton. And we'll be back in a fortnight. Make sure you hit subscribe on your screen to stay up to date with the latest Black Room podcast. You can find links to our socials and other Kurimao podcasts in the show description.